The following is a presentation by The Tabernacle, a community of changed lives. For more information regarding service times or if you would like to make a donation to The Tabernacle, you can do so by visiting our website at www.thetabchurch.com. Welcome again to the Tabernacle. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're certainly glad that you're here in our second weekend where we're looking at uh, worship. This is part of our continuing series on the book of Romans, uh, where this particular section, this particular six weeks, we're focused just on one chapter, Romans chapter 12, which is really the summit, the culmination of the book. Romans chapter 12, uh, uh, for many, has been called the summit of the Christian life. And, and really, the most critical parts of, of this whole book, if you were to sum it all up, is on the verse we looked at last week and the one we're going to look at to, you know, this morning. So you, you picked a good day. You picked a good day to be here. We're glad that you're here. You know, when we talk about worship, it's important for us to start in this place. I don't care if you're an adult, uh, a student, a child. We can all understand this. Everyone is a worshiper. Everyone is a worshiper. Everyone's born a worshiper. People in the church worship. People outside the church worship. Everyone worships. We're designed for worship. We're designed to give our heart, our attitude, our attention, our energy. The best of what we have, we're giving it to something or someone. We're always worshiping all the time. The question is, what or who do we worship? So that friend of yours that, <clears throat> excuse me, may not even consider themselves a Christian, they're a worshiper, they worship something. Before you became a Christian, you worshiped something. Even after you make a decision to trust Christ, we continue to worship. And here's the problem with worship, when we're giving of ourselves, we're giving the best of ourselves, you know, we are all like metaphorically, we're building an altar, Right, And we're setting on the wood and we're giving our best and we're offering it up to something or someone. The problem becomes when we take the good things that God has created and we turn them into God things. So when we worship the creation, you remember in chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Romans, when we take parts of the creation that God created and made good, and when we turn those good things into God things, 
that becomes a bad thing because those things can never satisfy. And we do this all the time. Money, sex, power, image, reputation, food, alcohol, you name it. We take a good thing and it gets out of whack and it becomes our God thing. That's a bad thing. And so what we find sometimes is Even as worshipers, we think we're in control of what we worship and we're not necessarily in control because sometimes our brain does funny things. In fact, I want to go there. I've been studying the past couple weeks and months the human brain. And I'm I'm no scientist. I'm no medical person. I can only speak in general terms because no matter how many times I read about it or watch it, I, you know, I, I, it's like math for me. My wife's the mathematician and scientist in this relationship. All right. I'm the arts guy. All right. I'm the English major, the history guy. Sorry to take you into my marriage, but in general terms, this is what I've learned about the brain. Number one, it's incredibly complex. There's all these different parts of the brain. And the, and, and the brain has, has all of these little transmitters, these little neural transmissions that are sending messages from the tips of your toes and your fingers back to the brain, back and forth, from your ear, eyes. You know, all of our senses are sending information and they're highly complex. Our thoughts, our decisions, our impulses, they're all connected. Stay with me for a second. There are more transmissions firing right now in your brain than there are stars in the universe. It's incredibly complex. So for example, ladies, right now, in your brain, you have about five computer screens that are open right now. Okay? One of them is vaguely listening to what I'm saying, but you're catching all of it because that's how God wired your brain. But you're also remembering something Bozo next to you said 10 years ago that you're still ticked off about. Right? You're also thinking about what that outfit that chick in the third space had, and would that look good on you or not? Or she has no business wearing that, right? You're also thinking about your to-do list for the week and whether or not whatever you're going to cook for dinner or who's cooking dinner or can you convince him to go out for dinner. And if you're a mom, you can vaguely hear your child screaming through that, that wall right there. That's, that's how amazing the brain is if you're a female. Now, if you're a dude here this morning, this is what you're thinking about right now. Nothing. Is that not true? And how many times is she going, what are you thinking about? Just talk to me. And he goes, nothing. Just talk to me. He's not lying. He ain't thinking about nothing. But even the most nothing thinking dude, there's millions and millions and billions of these these, these signals that are being sent back and forth. Now, here's another thing I'm learning about the brain, is that there's different parts of the brain that are responsible for different things that we do. So just play along with me, because I want you to... This isn't to make you look dumb. This is to help you remember. I need you to just grab your forehead like this. Now, most of you will do it, but there's some too cool... Yeah, I see you. Yeah, I see how too cool for school you are. That's Hey, thanks for helping me out, Mariah. I appreciate that. But right here, okay, this part right here... You can stop doing that, because you look funny. You look like the thinker. <laughs> This front part, it's about the, you know, it's smaller than the size of your fist. This is called the prefrontal cortex. You don't have to remember that, but just remember this. This part of your brain is the CEO of you. It's the CEO. This is the decision maker. This is the logical person. This is the reasonable person. This is the person that makes decisions based on the long term, right? 
I want these people to not think bad of me, so I'm going to shower today, right? This is the person that decided to put deodorant on. This is the person right now that's telling crazy train part of your brain, do not stand up on the seat and start jumping up and down and screaming because they probably have security, which we do, and they will be very nicely escorting you to the back, right? So this is the CEO that's saying, be cool, here's a decision, right? This is the reasonable person. Now, I'm not going to tell you about all the parts of the brain, but I want to tell you what happens. This person, if you're a Christian, knows that I want to worship Jesus, knows that I want all of my decisions to be like a living sacrifice unto God. And that's what we talked about last week, right? When so many of you stood up and made a decision to offer yourself as a response to God as a living sacrifice, you make a reasonable decision. Here's the problem. There's another part of your complicated brain and you can't point to it really because it's behind the prefrontal cortex and a little bit lower and it's several different parts of the brain that combined are called your limbic system just try that word on for size just say limbic system okay limbic system it's your auto impulses your reactions right your limbic system can be triggered and it's triggered by memory It's triggered by your experience, good experiences and bad experiences. Your limbic system could be triggered by something bad that happened to you when you were a child. Or your limbic system can be triggered by something that you've done in order to overcome pain in your life. Depression, anxiety, fear, sadness, loneliness. There's different things that we do that if we do them over and over and over and over again create pathways in our limbic system. So let me give you an example. Last week, uh, I didn't mean for this to be a dirty trick, but you remember the famous no music week, right? And we had that hot grill on here and I pulled out a steak and set it on the grill and you heard the sizzle. I'm getting my mouth doing it again right now. Same thing that many of you told me happened to you. The moment that you heard the sound of a steak on the grill, you started to salivate. Some of you. How many is that's true? Something happened to you physiologically when you heard that steak. Okay, the rest of you are vegans. Well, you need to go to God about that. He can save you. If you're a vegan, that's okay. I'm just kidding. But last week, people were texting me pictures. Oh, what a dirty trick. I had breakfast and I was hungry the moment I could hear it. Limbic system. Some of you responded to the limbic system and sent me, I don't know why you thought this was important, sent me pictures of the steak that you ordered at the restaurant on Sunday afternoon or that you made when you got home. Thanks for that, right? But even though your brain in in, in the front part, the prefrontal cortex knows that there was only one steak on here and we're not serving it to everyone, still salivation happens. Now, that's cute, there, but what happens when your limbic system triggers you to something that's not, you know, lovely and delicious like a steak? What happens when it triggers you to take good things that God has given you and turn them into God things? Right? Because something else that the limbic system does, it triggers dopamine. Right? When I respond in a certain way, dopamine, that's the feel good little stuff that, you know, we get in our brains. That, you know, this is the feeling after a run. This is a feeling that can be triggered by a lot of different things. But it becomes like a drug in our brains. And so this is what happens. If I, over time, consistently 
choose to make good things God things in order to mask pain, over time I'll build new pathways in my brain that my limbic system gets stronger and stronger and my prefrontal cortex finds it has to submit to. Over time, this is what we call addiction. You know, addiction is basically, in a theological sense, when over time I've turned too many times to good things and too many times I've used them to mask pain and hurt or whatever, alter my mood, they become God things, and now I become a slave. So I don't know what it is for you, but some of us, our limbic system has become like Mike Tyson. Remember him? Remember that boxer? from the 90s, who was crushing everyone. Like, he's retired now. I'm still afraid of Mike Tyson. Iron Mike, right? Coming out of the corner like this. Guys would just cave. Hold me, hurt, ow, and fall. Remember that guy? Like, he was knocked out in eight seconds. Got a million dollars. I wouldn't do it for a million dollars. You might die. So our limbic system becomes like Mike Tyson, and our prefrontal cortex is like Woody Allen. Oh, yeah. So this is why we say things like I couldn't help it. This is why we don't understand the things that we do or why that we do them. The limbic system is the heart of fight or flight. This is why as a grown man who has killed deer, right? I can come home and if my 11-year-old daughter is hiding behind the door and I'm not expecting it and she goes, ah, I do one of these, right? <laughs> limbic system kicks in. And then prefrontal says, calm down, you're a grown man. And then tell her, you know, I'm old, I could have a heart attack. Right? We find that there's a battle going on in our brain. And if I'm going to be a living sacrifice, I can't be a slave to fight or flight. I can't be a slave to the things that trigger. Some of us know exactly what that's like. You know, I've spoken to alcoholics before that on New Year's Eve, they get really... Really, really thirsty. You know, why is it that advertisers choose to, you know, try to sell us vitamins? You know, these are vitamins for men, gummy vitamins for men. But we're going to advertise it with a chick on a motorcycle who pulls off a helmet and flicks her hair around like that. No chick's hair looks like that out of a helmet. But we're with her and we're like, I got to have some vitamins. They're playing to your limbic system, man, right? Sex sells. What does it have to do with living sacrifices? Paul knew about this. That's why in Romans 7, he said, I do not do the things that I want to do. And the things that I want to do, I do not do. But I want to do the good things, but I find that when I try to do the good things, I end up doing the things that I don't want to do. He's talking about the battle in your brain. Way before science told us about prefrontal and limbic and amygdala and etc., etc. God understood this. In the book of James, it says that a divided man is unstable in all he does, meaning that we've got to settle this battle in our brains or forever we're going to be wrestling with sin, sin that is triggered. Sometimes against our will. This is why we say things like, I just can't help it. I want to be pure, but I can't help it. Yeah, I want to follow God, but why did I respond that way? Why do I continually act out this way? 
that you picked a good week. So in Romans chapter 12, today we just look at verse 2. But we're going to read verse 1 because they're connected. It starts with choosing to be a living sacrifice. But this is almost part 2 of what that really means. So if that was your decision last week or a decision you made a long time ago or you're still considering that decision, this helps us understand what that looks like. In verse 1, Paul said this. He said, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice. So let me pause. We don't give ourselves to God as a living sacrifice so he'll love us more. We give ourselves to God as a living sacrifice because he gave himself as a living and a dead and a resurrected sacrifice for us. Because of all Jesus did on the cross, we're responding to it. So we're not religious people. Religious people always trying to perform so God will give them a little feel good. No, we're going to give to God because what he's already done and what he won't take back. So that's why he deserves us as living sacrifices. The kind he will find acceptable, this is truly the way to worship him. So if you want to be a true worshiper, you can't be a part-time worshiper. You don't put your hand on the altar and not the rest of you. You don't offer, you know, your feet but not your torso. You don't get to give him just half of you. It's, he wants all of you, all of us. That's the living sacrifice. And now he tells us what it looks like, verse 2. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good, pleasing, and perfect. And I remember long ago, 27 years ago, I chose to memorize this entire chapter. And I learned it in the NIV. And in this Verse right here, this verse 2, the, the, way, the, the way I memorized it was, do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. And there's a little misunderstanding about that last part. Then you, what does it mean to test and approve what God's will is? Don't, don't, tran, or, you know, don't conform to the patterns of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What is, what is testing and approving God's good and perfect will? What that means is to test it, in this case, you will find out that his good and pleasing and perfect way is better. So back to the good thing that becomes God things and that's a bad thing. When the good thing that we worship is God and God alone, we find out that that's the best way to live. You guys, this is my own testimony. I've told you before, never wanted to be a preacher, never wanted to live in Michigan, never wanted to live in Buckley, Michigan, and never wanted to be a pastor at the tabernacle in northern Buckley, Michigan. But what I found in submitting my life to Christ as a living sacrifice, there's nothing else I want to do. And I didn't know that. He knew better than I did about his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And some of us were still trying to say, oh, I believe in God, but I'm going to see if all these good things, if somehow they'll satisfy me and I can turn them into God things because it feels good and, and we're surrendering to the limbic system all the time. We're just acting on impulse. We're just letting those triggers be the feel goods that we chase after. And Tyson's beating the snot out of Woody Allen every moment or when things get tough. 
Paul's basically telling us here in verse 2, this is how to change. This is how to change. This is how to change from that way of living to living sacrifice living. How do you change from not being satisfied by life to being satisfied by life? Well, in verse 1, as we talked about last week, it starts with being a living sacrifice. And then in verse 2, this is specifically how to change. Here's the first thing. He says, don't conform. Don't conform. In the New Living Translation, what I just read to you, he says, don't copy the behavior and customs of the world. Don't conform. That's my part. That's what I can do. If you want to change, if you're here today and you want to change, it starts here. Don't conform to the patterns of this world. Will you say, well, I'm an individual. I'm unique. I'm special. And in God's eyes, absolutely, you are. But have you noticed that we as human beings are incredible copycats? We'd like to think we're unique. But we're copycats. You notice that? Do you remember when copycat was a bad thing? Did the, okay. Wake up. You are the 11 o'clock service. Don't make me rebuke you. All right? Do you remember when copycat was a bad thing? Stop copying me. I'm not copying you. Stop copying me. Stop copying me. Stop copying what I'm saying. Stop copying what I'm saying. Sorry, I still have little kids in my house, so I hear this all the time. You're an idiot. You're an idiot too. Stop copying. You know, it's like, why do you got to do everything I do? We're incredible copycats. No, we've grown out of that face. Really? Count how many pickup trucks are in our parking lot. <laughs> now, I know that you have a pickup truck for work, right? But I'm going to tell you, there's a lot of pristine pickup trucks out there. We got people buying pickup trucks. They've never picked anything up. Because <laughs> if you live in northern Michigan and you're a dude or a chick, you need a pickup truck, don't you? Hey, can I put something in the back of that pickup truck? No, I don't want to get the bed dirty. I got a bed liner in there to protect the metal part, and I don't want the liner dirty either. Why do you have a pickup truck? Well, I want to be known as a man that if I ever did need to pick something up, I'm the type of guy that would do it. We're such copycats when it comes to pickup trucks, right? My wife refused to let me buy a pickup truck. She's like, nope, get in a Jeep. Because I know you'll never pick anything up. (laughs) We are incredible copycats. Look at fashion. Right? Ladies, shut that little part of your computer down. I know where it's going. Why is she wearing that? Oh, I want to get the purple stripe too. Whatever, right? Do you remember? Okay, there was a time in my life, let me prove it to you, when someone convinced me that pegging my jeans was a good idea. (laughs) It's never a good idea. Right? Remember that, the little rollover, the little fold thing? I did it because she told me to. We were copying. Some of you rock the mullet, you copycat mullet rocker you. The mullet was a horrible idea. Business up front, party in the back, no. Some of you went so far as to do the perm in the mullet. You're a grown man sitting in a chair with perm in your hair. So you can have a wavy mullet. You're not Patrick Swayze. It looked bad on him too. So we're copycats. And Paul says, if you want to be a living sacrifice, stop copying the world. Now, some people take this to extremes, right? Some people think, well, that means that if if everyone in the world's beautiful, I got to be ugly. Please don't be that guy or girl either, all right? 
We're not talking about that, but we're incredible copycats in the behaviors and the customs of this world, in the things that we value. And to be honest, you can't be a living sacrifice that way. A living sacrifice doesn't think about copying the world. A living sacrifice thinks about copying Jesus. And so weeks ago, months ago, when I started preparing this message, I knew this message was coming and I've I've been excited about it, but also dreading it just a little bit because I found myself, especially in the last three or four weeks saying, God, I need you to show me some areas where our church, where our tabernacle, where our community right here in Northern Michigan, where are we copying the customs of the world and how do we need to change? Because there's a thousand different things just right in this room that we probably need to change things that were copying the world. But I said, God, give me three big ones. And so with fear and trembling, I want to share the three that I believe God gave me through through counseling, through talking to people, listening to campus pastors, listening to adults, listening to students. These are the three that God gave me. And I I don't say that lightly and I don't say that often. I I don't come out and say, God told me that you need to... No, I, I don't play that game. But I believe in my heart that these are three things that God gave me that we need to stop conforming to the world about. There's no difference between the world and us. And the only reason I'm going to share this is because I'm more afraid of God than I am of you. So here's the first thing. Church, I believe that we need to change our minds and stop conforming our thinking to the world when it comes to Resentment. Resentment. What do I mean by resentment? That whole drawer that has love and grace and forgiveness and unity that's supposed to be inside of it. Somebody hurts our feelings. Somebody's misunderstood. Somebody has a bad moment. We don't forgive because they didn't ask or because God's not done with them yet and we make it all about us and our pride kicks in and so then we resent them and we hang on to it for some of us it's someone outside the church we don't pray for them we don't wish well for them We might even wave to them, but in our heart, we remember. Because you know what happens? When we pull that resentment out, and we dwell on it, and we rub it, and we shine it, it feels good. The dopamine rush comes. It does. It's not just drugs that make the dopamine come. The seething, the hanging on to that card that I could play it in. Well, you don't know what she did. And it's a stench. For some of us, we have resentments towards other people in this church. I had a pastor friend tell me, you know, at one point that at any given time, up to 10% of our congregation is waiting for something to give them a reason to leave. We're waiting for the last straw. Because a staff person, a decision, the board, somebody, you're done. You, I mean, you still come to church and you're, you're waving, oh, hi, you might even serve. But you've built up so many resentments towards people and you get good at wearing the mask and you're just waiting to drop the nuclear bomb. And it's not of God. Some of us are in marriages where we've been resenting our spouse for decades. 
because of a bad moment. Because he or she is not what you thought you were signing up for. And they can never do anything right. At the Last Supper, Jesus prayed that we would be one. He prayed that the way we would love one another would be a testimony to people outside the church, that they would know that we are Christians by the way we love one another. Jesus said that we should forgive one another as our Father in heaven has forgiven us. How can we pray the Lord's Prayer? God, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. I want to say this right now. If you're hanging on to any kind of resentment, you cannot pray that prayer with any sort of integrity. Aren't you glad that God doesn't hold resentments towards you? Now let me ask that again. Aren't you glad that God doesn't hold resentment towards you? How dare we? I'm not just talking to you, I'm talking to me, okay? You feel me? I'm saying this because I love you. God's dealt with me big time about resentment. Here's the second thing. Totally unrelated. We need to change our thinking, church. We need to stop copying the behaviors and the customs of this world and our attitude towards sexuality. The world, their attitude about sex is do what feels good with who it feels good with whenever and however I want to do it. My problem is, is I don't think that's much different in the church. Sexual sin is killing us. And we say things like, oh, well, I can't help it. It's my limbic system. Well, it's because years and years and years of choosing a certain kind of behavior builds these new superhighways that will always overpower the CEO. But if we believe there's no wasted words in Scripture, then we need to stop copying the world and allow God to do something because we've got to shut those highways down. Pornography is killing us. And this is the way pornography works, is, is, is I can use it, and you can use it as a mood-altering drug right now. And with the worldwide superhighway of the internet and, and smartphones, it's accessible anywhere, anytime, all the time. And it's not just a man problem. It's a man problem, it's a student problem, it's a child problem. And men are more likely to keep it a secret because they're ashamed, it makes them feel weak. So that's why in the church, where's all the men? Well, a lot of them are looking at porn and they're too ashamed to be a spiritual leader because they're full of shame because they feel like they're all by themselves because that how, that's how a man will interact with that. And he'll keep it a secret. Here's the sickening statistics that are coming out now is that the fastest growing porn users in our country are females. They're young females. And what we find with girls is they're more likely to go find somebody to do what they watched with. They're more likely to act on it with for real human beings. It's killing us. But it's not just there. The way we look and talk about one another. The way we reduce one another to sexual objects. 
You guys, Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed for this with fire. And we say stupid things like, well, my sex life is private. I got news for you. It's not private. That's my business. No, it's God's business. Sex is sacred. It's sacred. It's not private. God knows. Well, we're married in God's eyes. No, you're not. You're not married in God's eyes. Well, I have my sexual rights. No, you don't. Sex is not a right. Hate to break it to you, but treating sex as your right is the same reason a man will rape a woman. It's his right to take what he wants. It's not a right and it's not private. We need to change the way we think about sexuality. Sex is a good thing, praise God. But when I make it a God thing, it becomes a bad thing. And if you're a parent today and you're saying, well, at least not in our household. I've talked to youth leaders just this weekend who've come up to me and said, thank you for preaching this message because you would not believe what the teenagers are confessing. And their parents are living in la-la land. Well, what can you do? They make their own decisions. Listen, parents, you do not stop being a parent just because your kid has a driver's license. In fact, you better start engaging at that point. My opinion, sorry, telling you how to parent. Do you know that the brain, this front part is not fully formed until you're 25? I got a 20-year-old in my house that I keep reminding of that. You're you're getting closer. Someday you'll grow all the way up, right? Right? We need to be engaged. We need to change and stop copying. I got to hustle. Here's the third one. The third one is, I believe we need to change the way we think about our commitment to Jesus. We need to change the way we think about our commitment to Jesus. What do I mean by that? I know a lot of people love to throw the word hypocrite around a ton. But here's a problem. We've got a bunch of us Oh, we come to church, we say that we're a Christian, we might even pray in a bad situation, but at work, at school, you couldn't tell the difference. I was talking to a teenage girl about this. She says, you know, I see a lot of my friends that go to my school that call themselves Christians, but the moment they step in school, they do everything in their behavior, who they hang out with and how they talk to distance themselves as far as they can from Jesus and his church. It's like they're ashamed to even admit that they go to this church. You know what that's called? Hypocrisy. That's not commitment. Jesus said, whosoever is ashamed of me when they stand before men, I will be ashamed of them when they stand before my Father in heaven. And you guys, if we stand before God in heaven someday, the only advocate we have is Jesus. Your good works will mean nothing before God the Father. Scripture says that our good works before God the Father are filthy rags. If you don't have a really good lawyer whose name is Jesus Christ from Nazareth, you are damned to hell. And if he says, I'm going to be ashamed of you because on this earth we were ashamed of him, that's a frightening thing to think about. We need to change our commitment thinking. Or is that just me? Am I being judgmental? got men and women the same way. We have a lukewarm attitude towards God. We show up on the weekends to 
watch the movie. We've never read the book. We don't live it out in front of our friends at work. Revelation chapter 3, Jesus speaks and he says to the person like that, that you are lukewarm. You are neither hot nor cold. That's what I'm talking about. And what he says to the lukewarm Christian, you make me sick. I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. How do we change? The world is lukewarm about Jesus, so I either want to be a hot, hot coffee or an iced coffee, but I'm not going to be in the middle. The world says sexually, do whatever you want. I'm not going to copy the world. I want to be different about that. And there's a whole bunch of other things we've got to stop copying the world about. That's my part. What's God's part? God's part. In verse 2, when he says, let God transform you into a new person. Now, if I'd have preached this sermon years ago, I would have only given you the first point. Don't conform, and then I'd given you a list of all the things to do. But I got good news, and I got bad news for you. The bad news is this. You can't change you. Did you hear me, church? Have I wore you out yet? Let me say it again. Here's the bad news. You can't change you. This isn't like a lose weight program. This isn't a total uh, fashion makeover. You cannot change your brain. But God can. That's the good news. There's no wasted words in Scripture. He says, let God transform you. Now, you've got to participate in that. You've got a will. The limbic and the prefrontal, there's going to be a war and it's going to take a while, but God can do the changing. And the way he changes us, his transforming power works from the outside in and it works from the inside out. That's how the transformation takes place. So whatever it is, maybe the big three that I dropped on you, maybe that, you're like, well, I have no problem with any of those things. Well, good for you, but maybe there's something else. God wants to change us from the outside in. How does he do that? It's the stuff that we allow to be inputted into our hearts and minds and meditation. You see, a lot of times, the reason our limbic system is battling so hard against the prefrontal is because we're fighting against pain. And we've used money, we've used stuff, we've used relationships, we've used anger, we've used sex, we've used whatever we can, whatever our thing is, to mask that pain. Some of us, the way we mask our pain is we just keep talking. We just keep talking. As long as I'm talking, I don't have to be still. Because I have to be still, then there comes the forever empty. So we just keep talking. What about nothing and everything and the weather and talk, talk. And then it's just talk all the time. And then we ask people questions and then we say, bye, got to go. Right? And all we're trying to do is mask that hurt. But what if I started believing that my identity is not in my ability to talk or my ability to mask pain, but what if I started believing that my identity is in Christ? What if I started believing, this is how God works from the outside in, that I'm loved, that I'm adopted, that I'm forgiven. I'm forgiven for everything that I've done and everything that I ever will do, that he's not taking that away, that I'm unique, that I'm chosen, that I'm precious, that I'm gifted, that I have a purpose. That's why every week we come on Sunday and we repeat these things because some of us don't believe it yet. Oh, that's good that God loves me. I got to run over here and mask my pain. What if you just gave the pain to Jesus and believed what he said about you? That's letting God transform you from the outside in. 
We get that in our songs. We get that from his word. We get that from the teaching. We get that from retreats and from Bible studies and from the community. When people around you start reinforcing it, yes, you are gifted. Yes, you can make it. Yes, you can be changed. At Fight Club on Thursday night, we had a guy stand up and very bravely, the most courageous guy in that room stood up and gave his testimony about sexual addiction and how God was, was setting him free, has set him free, and is continuing to set him free. And he was saying, there is hope. Well, man, I'm never going to do that. Ooh, what's that guy talking about? People think you're a weirdo. No, he's the freest guy in that room. What are you going to call him? A perv? He was the first guy to get honest in a room full of 70 dudes and say, this is who I am and that's who he is and he can do it for you. That's transformation coming from the outside in. And he was confessing and testifying that God was changing him from the inside out. And you see, when... We allow God's truth and we allow God's grace and we encourage God's love to permeate from the outside in. He starts transforming us from the inside out. And we can't do that alone. We need each other. So this past week I was watching a TED Talk. You guys know what a TED Talk is? Some of them are great. Some of them are weird. Uh, whatever. This one was pretty cool. wasn't necessarily Christian. But it had to do with addiction. And, and the reason that I bring up addiction, even if you don't think you're an addict, because it's easy to look at an alcoholic or a drug addict or some other type of addict and say, well, they should make better decisions. But all of us with our sin are somewhere on the spectrum getting close to it. It's just some of us are better at masking it. And so what this guy did is he had done a study about addiction because he said the problem with our addiction studies is they may be inaccurate. 40, 50 years ago, they put a rat in a cage with nothing but two feeder tubes. One feeder tube had water. One feeder tube has water and heroin. And the rat did what you'd expect the rat to do. And it happened over and over and over. The rat tasted the water. The rat tasted the water and the heroin, chose the heroin over and over and over. It built new superhighways in its brain. He continued to choose that till he was addicted, he was hooked, and then he died. And we say, well, of course. That's why I don't make a good thing like alcohol into a God thing where you need it so much and then you die. Or drugs or heroin or all those other bad things, right? But this guy said, maybe we did the test wrong. So he decided to do something different. It's changing the way I'm thinking about addiction. It's changing the way I'm thinking about sin. Instead of putting one rat in there, they put a bunch of rats. They put girl rats. They put guy rats, young rats. They put good-looking rats, not-so-good-looking rats, a bunch of rats. They had a rat community. Not only that, but they gave the rats something to do. They built a rat city. They had a movie theater. There was a disco. There was a job, something to do, an office building. I don't know. Yeah, you get the point. I mean, there's wheels. There was, there was community. There was interaction. There was a whole bunch of different rats. It was a bigger cage. They changed the cage. They put the same thing. They put a water tube, and they put water with heroin. Guess what they found out? The rats went to the water, and the rats went to the water and the heroin, and over time, the rats continually chose the pure water. And they didn't get addicted, and they didn't die. Why? They said, maybe the rats need to change their cage. 
Guys, this is why we're always talking about why we need each other. I mean, instead of choosing the water and the heroin, rats are like making babies over here. You know, rats are finding their purpose on a spinning wheel. You know, rats are going fishing. In that, I don't know if they were going fishing, but you know what I'm saying. There's power in our community. There's power in the body of Christ showing up for one another. Part of letting God transform you is letting the body of Christ, which Scripture says we are, letting one another in. You know, I've got this bad reputation that I don't like people. What God taught me on sabbatical is that's irrelevant. I need people. I need people to encourage me. I need people to correct me. I need people to keep me on the straight and narrow. I need people that I'm sad to say, this is some things where I need to change my thinking because I've been copying the world and I need my friend's help to help me not copy the world, but instead together to copy Christ. How do we change? We don't conform and we let God transform. And when I say let God transform, it doesn't happen in a single moment where you pray a prayer and then he touches you with the magic wand and then you're perfect. No, it's a process. It's a process by which together we follow Christ. Just like sex isn't private, you're following Christ isn't private. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, it gives us a clue about this. It says, whenever someone turns to the Lord, a veil is taken away. For the Lord is the Spirit, and wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So all of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like Him as we are changed into His glorious image. There's two things I get from that scripture. Number one, how do we change? It's a process. It doesn't happen all at once. I listened to two old guys, both in their 70s out there in the third space, just talked this morning about one of them said, you know, I'm 73 years old. And do you know what I've discovered? I've been a Christian all my life and I'm still a follower. Haven't stopped following. I'm still being changed. Isn't that beautiful? He's got the maturity to realize I may be 73. I'm still a follower. Second thing I get from that verse is the transformation is only a reflection of Jesus. In fact, that passage from 2 Corinthians is referring to that time when Moses went to the top of the mountain representing God's people and he spent time in the presence of God and it says that when he came down, he glowed. Remember that? He glowed. We still don't fully understand what it is, but we know that it was so palpable they had to put a veil over him because the people weren't getting any work done. They're just staring at Moses. Check this guy out. Glows in the dark. Fake and bake. Wasn't invented yet. But he was reflecting the glory of the Lord. He spent so much time reflecting the glory of the Lord in his presence. Now he's reflecting it. That's how we're transformed. That's how God transforms from the outside in. And that's how we can be changed from the inside out. But it starts with offering your body as a living sacrifice. Can't do it halfway. It continues by saying, you know what, God? How am I conforming to the world and how should I instead conform to you? And then it's letting God 
transform us. You know the cool thing? Supernaturally, it happens. Supernaturally, it's happening. And you can get to a place where you're not a slave to the limbic. Because we build new pathways. We get the feel goods. Finding his good and pleasing, perfect will. It can be done. So what's God saying to you? The band's going to come. And we're going to sing. And I'm going to ask you right now if you'd bow your heads. And I know for some of you, God's already pointed out something in your life. That's the way God works. But if he hasn't, like I would ask you in this moment to ask him, God, what are you showing me? Where am I copying the patterns of this world and where do you want it to change? Maybe for you, 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 you were afraid to stand up last week and say, I, I, I need to offer myself as a living sacrifice. Maybe this is the week you do that. Maybe you've been standing in the way because of fear of letting God change your heart. Outside in, inside out. You can change. He can change. We can be transformed by the renewal of our minds. God, I pray that you would show us practical and tangible ways. Maybe it's an area we didn't mention today. But God, I know that you want us as a church to stop resenting one another. God, I know that I know that I know in our church that we need a new commitment to thinking God thoughts about the sacredness of sex and to stop acting like animals, to stop being slaves to the dopamine in our brains. God, sex isn't our problem. Worship is our problem. We don't know how to worship. God, would you reinforce as we do our best in areas that you show us to not copy, but to let you transform us. God, would you help us to be committed no matter what, no matter matter what our fear is of what people might think. God, help us to only fear you. There's nothing else worth fearing in this world, not even death. Not heights, not depth, not pain. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would change us for your glory and our joy. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.